Okay, so this irrelevant topic of um, division in the church and division in the world, um, it turns out it's been happening um, not only, you know, locally in the news, uh, but uh, for all time. And um, today we're going to talk about divisions in the, among believers then and now. Who's this? Who's this a picture of? Adam and Eve. And what's Adam saying? Oh, she did it. She did it, right? <laughs> right? So um, they had, Adam and Eve, the most personal, personal and intimate relationship with God who lived and dwelled among them, walked with them in the garden, and yet still they were distracted by nuances and were distracted by something that offered something like God, but not God himself. And I think Paul, when he's talking to us in these 16 chapters, he's saying, don't get distracted over much by things that are like God or for God or lead to God or methodologies about God without, with, and lose sight of God himself. Because that's what happened right there. Losing sight of God, gaining sight of self, and gaining a thought about what God would want me to do about being like God is the problem. Um, that's a great tactic of, of Satan. It was a tactic of him in the beginning. And it was a tactic for him in the second generation. Oops, there, oops, this is an old one, shoot. Okay, in the second, my, my, uh, my PowerPoint is not as I thought, but supposed to be up there is a picture of Cain killing Abel. And if you remember their dissension was among what was an appropriate sacrifice. And they both gave a sacrifice, they had behaviors leading up to worshiping God. And then the dissension was whose behavior was better? And of course, the answer from God himself wasn't good enough for one of the brothers who took it out on the other brother. So divisions in the church are as old as the church itself. We should not be surprised by that. It's precisely where we find our source of angst in this world, oftentimes, even divisions among believers these days. This is a picture of what you've seen in the news probably for the last year or more. Um, Americans, fighting Americans about what it means to be American. And in the background, there's somebody you know, holding a sign in the words of Christ. In these, I command you to love one another. These are likely all believers fighting about what it means to be a believer in America. And I would think this was unusual, except I was with a lot of my relatives this week <laughs> during the president's address. And there was much camera time focused on division. Every time they scanned the room and one half was up and the other half was down, we saw division, entrenched division, a certain kind of tribalism that is not new to God either. Tribalism has been a problem. We, we take our tribe and we say, whatever it's about, I'm for it. Or as C.S. Lewis writes in one of his books, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. I'm for it, whatever that it is, even if the, the real it is up here. During that whole um, uh, uh, session on television, the, the broadcast, I was really trying to listen, which is challenging because, as, as Michelle said, I only hear out one ear and sound bounces strangely, and I was kind of far away from the room, and some of my cousins who were visiting my parents where I was was up front, and she kept saying, we just have to be Americans. We should all just be Americans. We need to be Americans, which was fine, but I was trying to figure out what that actually meant and what she actually meant. 
And she was very passionate about it, but unclear. And it turns out she's not the only one unclear. Yesterday's newspaper from the Daily Herald. Here's the headline. What does it mean to be an American? Polls show Americans can't agree on the answer to the question. So when we say we all belong to Christ, it would be good if we understood what that meant. And that's what Paul is trying to teach us here. He's trying to teach us what it means to follow Christ by the attributes of Christ that Christ himself has bestowed upon those of us who who call on his name and have been gifted with his spirit. And we're going to study that today um, by virtue of looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look primarily at chapter 1. And I'm just going to read to you from my NIV version here. Uh, I know uh, Chrissy gave us a lecture yesterday and said, go get yourself an ESV, but I didn't. <laughs> she didn't exactly say that, but she did say that was the, co- the version that she was using. Um, I do have an ESV version, but it's this big. <laughs> and these eyes are not that big anymore, so I'm going to go ahead and read from my big Bible. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. That's, here's who's writing the letter. To the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you lack no spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so there may be no division among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brother, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Oh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. And beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. I'm going to stop right there. Can you hear Paul's attitude? Isn't he like a parent, and the kids are fighting again, and he's like, kids, really? Really, haven't we gone over this? Why is there so much division among you? But he only gets to that after he says to the people listening, this is who you are. And if we could just listen to the this is who you are part, we wouldn't need so much finger wagging. Maybe not 15 more chapters or 1,500 more years, right? Maybe we would have gotten it. So he labels us. He gives us all kinds of adjectives. And on your handout, you're going to see a list there um, under the united identity. 
And we read some of those words. We're the church, we're holy, we're sanctified, we're graced, we're enriched with speech and knowledge. We lack no spiritual gift. We are waiting eagerly, firm to the end, blameless, brothers and sisters in fellowship, powerful, wise, and there's more. These are the ones I'm going to talk about today. But first we're going to talk about the kind of identity we find outside of that that may distract us from this one. So let's just talk about some personal identity. All right, so all of us are made, knit together in our mother's womb. And that's cool. A little bit different stitching on some of us than others. Um, I find this a fascinating topic because I frankly think I am a fascinating person. <laughs> and I know you do too. I mean yourself. Um, so um, we who are image bearers of God can find out a lot about how our uniquenesses are puzzled together to form the full image which is God himself, in a book like this one. This is called uh, The Road Back to You, which is a study of the Enneagram. And I'm not sure I'm saying that right, because I just bought the book. I didn't study the whole thing. But there we go. The Enneagram is a, um, a kind of a, a chart. It's not anything religious. It's just a chart, a circular chart, um, that outlays about nine characteristic types, not necessarily personality types uniquely, but also motivational types and bents toward um, weaknesses and strengths. And it um, talks about uh, where we go in our default mode when we're both good and bad. And it was very fascinating. My daughter and I were reading through it yesterday. And I just have to tell you that um, as she was reading about herself, I said, look, Amy, there you are. You're a number one. Or uh, I've already forgotten what number she is, but let me just say she's, she's a number nine. When you read the book, you'll, you'll like my Amy because she's a number nine. And I said, um, <clears throat> yeah, Peacemaker, there she is at the top. And as she was reading that and reading the descriptors and seeing some of the, um, the storylines that totally matched her way of being that we have often misunderstood in our household, uh, she began to cry. She began to cry like somebody who says, he sees me. He knows me. He made me this way. It was intentional. I have purpose, even in my uniqueness. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Every number on the Enneagram, the author says, teaches something about the nature and character of God who made us. And inside is a, hid is a gift hidden that reveals something about God's heart. And whether or not this is science, this is certainly not gospel, this is certainly not Bible, but this is definitely a way of unpacking some of the beautiful design that God has on each of us and our personal identity. Some of us, myself included, have needed to know that I'm okay so that I can begin to do the next thing for God, so that I can be set. I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about I get who God made me. It's good. Let's go. All right. So uh, then we talk about something called personal identity, or I'm sorry, comparative identity. Um, this is um, a conversation that deals with who I am compared to who you are. And this is where we get in a little bit of difficulty. Now, comparing them on the Enneagram, my husband's a, an eight and I'm a, a two, and that sort of thing is interesting. Comparatively, it, it can be healthy, but it all can, also can be difficult, uh, challenging. I am better than you. I am higher than you. I am more superior than you. I am more intelligent than you. I am selected and you are deselected. The problems arise when we exaggerate the characteristics, some of which we might see in a, in a graph or a chart like an enneagram or even in our churches. 
like we say, one gift is higher than the other, one set of talents is better than the other, some people sing better than others, <laughs> play the piano beautifully better than others, but the problem is when we exaggerate those characteristics and we grab hold of a single trait and turn it into an ultimate value or an idol, and when we privilege one characteristic above all else, and that's when it becomes grotesque and unrecognizable, and the author says, dare I say, sinful. And this is where we have our trouble with comparative identity. Like I said, nothing is new. We've been comparing Adam against Eve, Cain against Abel, people groups against people groups by tribe, creed, affiliation, sports team. We have made an industry over division and competition. It's in us. We kind of like it, apparently. There's a them and there's an us. I can define myself by who I am not. And I can define you by not being me. And at some level, there's a judgment there that is unholy. So let's look at the holy identifier, which is God himself. So instead of comparing ourselves against other characteristics and others, we can compare our, ourselves against who God is. And that's a completely different measurement, is it not? This is one that creates a, 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 an absolute need to fall to your knees or your face in, in identifying who's God and who isn't. Because that answer is clear to me. And it was clear um, to Moses when he gets some marching orders from God who's actually speaking to him. You know, who do I say sent me? And he answers, everybody say it, I am. And that was enough. That was enough. Because God is all of the ends. And then uh, when Job, who's having some trouble, clearly terrible trouble in his life, says to God, why are you doing this to me? He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answers him. You want to hear his words? Uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the suns shouted for glory? Where were you, Job? God wants us to know that he's, he's, he's not our homeboy. He's holy and mighty and sovereign and overall, and we don't always get the answer we're seeking. He didn't promise us we would. He promised us that he would be sovereign in our lives and work all things together for the good for those who, of us who are loving him. But he didn't promise us every answer along the way, and Job asked the question and didn't get the answer he necessarily wanted. In the end, we all get the answer that we, we're due. And God says, I am the Alpha, beginning, and the Omega, and the beginning and the end. And everything in between, watch, wait, see, stay aligned, and, and I got you. So um, there's a good quote by Flannery O'Connor, who is a uh, female uh, novelist, early part of our century. She writes, to know oneself is, above all, to know what one lacks. It is to measure oneself against the truth, capital T, and not the other way around. The first product of self-knowledge is humility. Would you agree? 
let me hear you say amen, this is a Baptist church. <laughs> Interesting, Flannery O'Connor, uh, she began her writing career in college and she wrote for her school newspaper every week. And you know what the name of the school newspaper was? The Corinthian. I just thought that was funny. So now it's up to us to live up to the identity we've been given. And that list there that Paul proclaims, exalt, exhorts, is the identity we have already been given by the death and resurrection of Christ. He has in, endowed us with the qualities of himself by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And he, he's given them to us. They're there for us to live what our job now is to live up into it. I saw a, um, a magazine piece on television the other day about a young man, a Purdue, Purdue University basketball player, current basketball player. I wish, did you, you know his name? Yeah, you don't remember. <laughs> I don't, and uh, he's uh, apparently awesome. And um, at, uh, we'll just go with that. And tall, that go too. Um, he was, um, an adopted child um, out of the foster care system, out of a very um, difficult situation. And at the time that his um, parent adopted him, he was already a, a young teenager weighing about, I think he, he was somewhere around 360 pounds or something like that, did, did not demonstrate any skills of a basketball player at that time. And had had a very you know uh, difficult life, had lived in and out of homeless shelters until his mother gave him up to the system. And then uh, this gentleman um, adopted him, um, former Bears player, I think, as, I, as it turns out. But anyway, um, the man who adopted it, some, I, I, I had more love to give, and I, and I wanted to be able to give it to someone. And he told this young man uh, that he was going to be great. And at the time, he said he couldn't even jump over a piece of paper. <laughs> Um, but through his positive exhortations on his life and telling him that you will be, he has been and has become that. And he, he's, he's making, uh, he's been called, the, I think, the greatest player in the Big Ten right now. So um, here's, here's Paul exhorting us to live up to the identity that we have already been given. Okay, let's talk about the identity, the united identity of Christ. First of all, he calls us the church. And in Greek, it is ecclesia, um, which also, which doesn't actually mean the church as in the church building. It is uh, translated in most of our Bibles, um, church in both ways. But this really means the assembly or those called out to be in community, the us, as it were. He's, he's writing a letter to those assembled with an identity in Corinth as being Christ followers and meeting together. In, or with, in a building or not, uh, it's is, is irrelevant at this point. So we are not just the church together on Kesslinger, or the church together on Caneville, or we're not just the church together in Mill Creek. We are the assembled together of Christ. And um, that's, what, that's what Paul is telling us. He's telling us, you have an identity as a team. That's, a, that's an important thing. Because there are divisions in the building right here in our community. Divisions over details, divisions over plots and plans, divisions over methodology, divisions over worship styles and singers and songs and every other thing, whether we should have a gym floor, whether we should have carpeting, whether we should have communion once a week or we should have communion once a month, many, many details. But he's saying, don't forget, you're the family assembled together for a purpose. That purpose is bigger than the details. We are holy and sanctified. Those are words that describe us 
because someone gave them to us. These are, this is a picture of my white patent leather Sunday school shoes that I remember from when I was a child. Raise your hand if you had white patent leather Sunday school shoes. shoes. Can you smell the patent leather in your mind, right? Oh, I was, they were so amazing. They were shiny, and I would polish them if they got a nick, which they did because I was pigeon-toed, but oh, I love those white patent leather shoes. And they were only my church shoes. When my children were little, I used, we used to have what we called church clothes. We, we don't so much anymore. But those clothes were set aside for sacred purposes. You know? I mean, uh, this is as simple as it can get. We are set aside for sacred purposes, whether we're wearing church clothes or not. We have a purpose on the search that is set aside. And we are able to do that because we are first made pure and clean and holy and white, like my Sunday school shoes, uh, by God himself. We are graced, which means we are given a free and unearned gift. This is a word we say a lot in the church. We are graced, but I'm, I put it here as graced because it means it's done to us. This is a passive voice. We are graced by the hand of our God. In other words, it was his idea, it was his money to give, and he gave it. And what we do with it next is up to us, but it was his idea. I like this a little definition of grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's us. Blessed at Christ's expense. We are enriched with speech and knowledge. Well, that's clear because I'm standing up here with the mic, right? No. Um, I, I confess to you that um, I've been up a lot of the night, and I studied a lot of yesterday and many, many days in advance of this in fear and trepidation for this 20 minutes. Because this is important, right? But we are enriched with speech and knowledge for his purposes. And I say this to my small group. I don't come to you because I've had theology training. I didn't even go to Bible school. I wasn't even a student of the Bible very long in my life before I began to be a teacher of the Bible. But God does that. I had no interest in being up here telling you how to live the Bible. Some of you are way deeper and wiser than I am in these things. But I did spend the time, and I do trust the one who enriches. And, you know, here I am today. <laughs> and Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen to that. And then he says to us, we are lacking no spiritual gift. We're going to get to the spiritual gifts later in our study, but there are references, a couple of references to spiritual gifts and some lists, and there's a spiritual gifts inventory test and things you can do online. For the sake of conversation for today, I'm going to list a couple here in Romans 12, 6 through 8. This list exists. Paul also wrote the book of Romans. This book lists prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and mercy. When we have the Holy Spirit, he endows us with some things we wouldn't have had without him. We may have had talent, we may have had training, we may have had capacity, but the Spirit offers a different kind 
of advancement in those areas and certainly um, an exercise in using the Spirit's power within our weak and humble bodies. And in 1 Corinthians 12, you'll, you'll run across this later, wisdom, utterance of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, the ability to distinguish between spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. We have everything we need for the purpose of building up the ecclesia and honoring God with our unity. This is what they're for. They're not for ourselves. They're not for glorification or domination or superiority or inferiority. They are for the building up of the body in order that we can glorify God. And we are waiting eagerly. Don't you love this picture of the groom standing at the top there, <laughs> waiting eagerly? Um, I got an invitation in the mail a few months ago for a wedding that, that we're going to go to next week in Marco Island. Sorry, I won't be here. <laughs> um, pretty cool. And these people spare no expense. This is a second uh, wedding later in life, and they're very, very excited to be making this union. And so I got an amazing invitation back in the spring, which I showed my other Bible study because it like fit my Bible study so well, which was I opened a box not too dissimilar from this one, and inside was a, was a starfish and layer upon layer of invitation to this event that was going to happen on the beach. Okay, It's really cool. With Like this one with custom-made stamps and calligraphy and all this stuff. Okay, this came in the mail yesterday. God is so good. He delivers to my mailbox object lessons for Bible study. <laughs> it does. Okay, so I open the box like this, and it says, Carrie and Ken, March 17, 2017. Our wedding is a few weeks away, and we can't wait to celebrate with you. And inside the box is this really sweet pack it with an itinerary of all the events, two luggage tags, and sunglasses with the date on them, waiting eagerly. This is the identity to live up to. Waiting eagerly. What are we waiting for? For the blessed hope and the appearing of Jesus. Does our life speak this beautiful, joyful, invitational expectation of the glory of God that's to come. Probably mine doesn't most of the time, but I'm going to start working on it. I'm going to Pinterest. I'm going to Pinterest it like that. So, yeah, waiting eagerly. That's how Paul sees us. You know you guys are waiting eagerly, remember? Remember, team, what we're waiting for? The glorious reappearing of Christ, our Savior and Lord, who makes all things right. Remember? For them, they thought it was going to be soon. For us, we think it's going to be soon. Come, Lord Jesus, soon. That's what, that's what we're looking for. And firm to the end and blameless. Who's that girl flying on that trapeze? Here she is. That's me. Isn't that foolish? Yeah, I, I'm a fool for Christ. Okay, firm to the end and blameless. Guess what? I took a trapeze lesson at age 55. I know. And um, I learned to do this trick in two hours, which was to jump off a platform that was too high, um, and hang from my knees, which were too stiff, and swing back and forth, and then reach my hands out and grab a flyer. This was the culminating moment where I grabbed the flyer, and God bless him, he caught me, even though he only weighs about 125 pounds. Um, yeah, firm and blameless to the end of my two-hour lesson. I was quaking the whole entire time. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> First Timothy says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What you may not notice on first look is that there I am tethered with a belt so tightly around my waist I could scarcely breathe, which was tied to pulleys and led to the ground on tall, on long ropes, which were anchored by awesome muscular men <laughs> who were fighting the good fight with me. And that big soft net under, underneath me, only 20 feet underneath me, but underneath me indeed, before the ground, and that little boy catching me and the girl on the other platform telling me when to go, they had my back. They had my back. I can fight the good fight, and I can take hold of eternal life, but I need you. I need you to hold my ropes. I need you to show me the way to go. I need you to put the belt tightly enough around me, and I need you to, to tell me that I'm doing it right. That's what the church is for. That's what unity in the church looks like, fighting the good fight together and wearing a fine little leotard doing it. <laughs> or matching pajamas. Because this is a picture of brothers and sisters in fellowship. These are words that Paul uses for us. He said, and and um, this is important because if we don't look like we've got it together, we're not attractive to anyone else. Who would want to be on a team where everybody's fighting? I went to a church once before we came here. We were visiting churches in the community, and we went through a fellowship hall and after, after the uh, service, and um, we started to head down a hallway, and someone yelled at us and said, you can't go that way, because apparently we were trespassing. But we didn't know. We explained we were sorry. We didn't we were new. And she said, oh, thank goodness you're new here because there's nobody here to do any of the work. We need some new blood. <laughs> and I did not buy the matching pajamas. <laughs> Okay? We're supposed to be the fragrance of joy and life and community and gathering and goodness and forward thinking. and Yeah, that wasn't it. <laughs> John um, writes in Jesus' words, Jesus is saying his last prayer in John 17, I do not ask for these only, meaning these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you and they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Is this small stakes that we be one? High stakes. High stakes is unity in the church. Never a time is it more important that we are shown Christians by our love than today. At least in our lifetime. This is the call on us to be one with Christ in order to heal the wounds of the world. And we can be powerful in doing it. Paul says so. In Acts, we hear, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. These are the words of Jesus telling us, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That includes America. That powerful witness comes from his endowing us with power, from the full armor of God that he's given us. And we will be wise. And if we're not wise, he gives us a reason and a place to find out how to be wise. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask with faith, 
with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. I'm going to go quickly here. That wisdom that we're talking about, we know as foolishness to the world. There is value in reasoning. There is some merit in good reasoning because Paul reasoned and Jesus reasoned in the temple. We've got long passages where Paul is reasoning. There's value in reasoning. Call it apologetics. We, we, it's a good thing for us to be able to reason. Is it the main thing? No. Is being a good orator, a philosopher, a person who can make solid arguments or put people down and win with a fight, the, even if it's for the right purpose, the, the main thing, the answer is, all right, signs and wonders. Yes, the Jews would be looking for signs and wonders. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you be looking for signs that God is active and a part of your life? Aren't we always saying, God, just show me, as Michelle said in our first example out in the worship area, just show me, Lord, that you're real? God was good. He gave Moses lots of signs. He gave the people of Israel lots of signs. He gave Jonah signs. He gave Gideon signs. He gave John the Baptist's parents signs. He gave Mary, the mother of Jesus, signs. He gave us signs in Jesus himself, miracles, and the resurrection signs are good. Not the main thing. Got to lead to the main thing. The main thing is the cross. The cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing. Let's think about why that is foolishness. The cross is a symbol of death, of defeat. It would be like wearing this around your neck. Anybody want that jewelry for Easter? <laughs> a noose or a guillotine necklace? Do you understand that we've turned the cross into something that we have failed to remember what it represents? It represents the sacrificial defeat of our leader and the empty cross, the absolute resurrection of him from that place of defeat. And that's why it's central. And that's why everything else, our methods, our tribes, our patterns, our cultures, are secondary, are small potatoes to the main thing. The inside-out wisdom of Jesus, hard sell, girls. Trials are joy. Persecution is blessing. Servanthood is power. Weakness is strength. I'll take a double dip. Why would the world want that? Only because we're unified in joy. Only because we offer the world something that nobody else can offer, which is the hope of something that supersedes all things that fall short in the end. So if there's something to boast about, we know what it is. It is to boast about Jesus. And it requires these things in us. I've written three of them on your paper, and the fourth one is for you to write, basically because I forgot to write it. <laughs> Availability. Paul says in Corinthians, For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became one as, as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why? So that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them its blessing. That means being available out of our tight, controlled circle of like-minded folk. Then we have to be ready with the testimony. 
And the testimony is not my story, it's his story. I am because he did. What is true about my life that makes Jesus famous? That's the key. When I tell the story of my testimony, who comes out as the star of the story? And if it's anybody other than Jesus, it's not a testimony about Jesus. And then we have to have some theology, offering some good news clearly. I have a friend who's just come to Christ, and she wants a lot of answers. A lot of them. Even everything from um, either three gods or is there one, to why do we say God bless you when we sneeze, and many, many things in between. And this is where it matters that you know what you believe and why you believe it and hone up on your theology. There is a theology of coming to Christ on page 22 in your book, which is the gospel, that God is all in all. I ain't so much. He reconciled me to himself through his death and resurrection on the cross. He offers me eternal life because of it, and I can share it with others. And if you don't have an elevator pitch of the gospel, today's the day to practice. And it doesn't have to come in a tractor or a pocket, and you don't have to stand on a soapbox to do it. You have to be available. You have to have a true conviction in your heart that you could tell as a story, and you have to know who Jesus is and what he did for us. And then we need a place to move our, the believers into a community, into assembly, into an ecclesia, a hospitable place to grow and gather, a place where the church is whole and healthy and welcoming and full of what we are known for as Christians, ideally living up to what he has already done for us, love. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, you are the only one that deserves glory and honor, and yet we steal it for ourselves. We like to be important in your kingdom. We like to wrestle with others about who's going to sit on the right or the left, and there's nothing new under the sun. We don't surprise you. Lord, help us to be less disappointing. Help us to be more um, humble and more desirous of becoming transformed in your image and likeness so that we can bless the world with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.